This is such a pleasure to be back here at Edgewood Bible Church. Uh, I'm not sure if many of you remember my wife and I and, and my three boys. We were here about two years ago. I uh, had the pleasure of serving you. Um, and at that time, I was an intern uh, at RBC. I had just gone into the internship there for ministry. And by God's providence, uh, sooner than I thought would happen, uh, they put me in the elder candidacy program, and I went through my doctrinal studies, and by the Lord's providence, uh, they made me a pastor there. And so recently, I've been ordained as a pastor at uh, Redemption Bible Church, uh, and it's really, it's kind of a surreal experience to be here, because this is the, the original place. This is kind of the beginning, the launching point of our spiritual ministerial journey, uh, so to speak. Uh, we attended here at EBC when you guys were planting uh, that church, uh, Redemption. Uh, we weren't a part of that team, uh, but we were orbiting maybe around like where Pluto is around that whole thing. We were aware of the whole situation. We were praying for that, uh, that church plant. Uh, we were there at the very first service, and then uh, uh, sometime later, about maybe six, eight months after they planted that church, uh, my wife and I, be, we began uh, to feel a call uh, from God to go be a part of that church body. And by his providence, this was part of it. Uh, to enter me into the ministry and to come back full circle uh, back here, back to the original launching place uh, to be able to minister uh, to you guys. It is amazing to see our Lord work in those ways. Uh, so to begin with, uh, would you pray with me? Lord, Father in heaven, you are good. Uh, Lord, great is the mystery of your providence, uh, of who you are, your holiness, your righteousness, uh, Lord, we have such a privilege to be able to come here to this place uh, that you have called us by your Holy Spirit to gather a people uh, for yourself uh, to be holy and to worship you in spirit and truth through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we glorify you. We praise you. We thank you so much that you have given him uh, for us, that you have gathered us all together in Christ, that we are a part of his body, that we have fellowship with one another, and that we have a relationship with you. Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us the Bible, we, that we have the truth of your word uh, as a guiding light uh, for our hearts uh, to know who you are. Pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning, that your presence would be felt, uh, that you would minister to us through this word, that you would help me to be able to be faithful to your word and true to it, Lord. Minister to us, convict us, and bring us closer together to glorify you through Jesus. In his precious name we pray, amen. Um, so I, I'm sure that all of us would agree that we live in a luxurious age, uh, particularly in this nation. Uh, wealth is more abundant uh, than any time in the history of the world. More people on the average are experiencing the benefits or greatest standard of living now than ever before. And not only is wealth abundant, uh, but our ability to observe it. Uh, is been increased. We can see such massive wealth in ways that we've never be had before in the past. Uh, there was certainly knowledge of rich and poor, uh, but there was a much stronger division in there. Uh, today, we have the ability to be able to see into the opulent lifestyles uh, in a way that mankind has never been able to be before. It's always before our eyes. Uh, we can see it in movies. We can see it in TV, uh, magazines. Uh, we have news programs, internet, social media, you name it. There are all kinds of avenues and windows open for us to be able to become transfixed on the amazing things that exist and that are accessible to the wealthy. And there's a certain magnetism to it, I think. Uh, there's, a, there's a life of ease that comes with having that wealth. Uh, and I think that we make the connection um, of seeing that as privilege, uh, that there's an advantage that they have when facing life's problems. And it's interesting um, how we see problems in terms of money. Uh, that if we don't have money, uh, problems exist. Uh, but uh, if we do have money, then they are solved. They go away. But it's not just wealth that we're drawn to. Uh, it's the power, uh, the approval, uh, and in many cases, uh, it's the popularity, the glamour, uh, the talent, uh, you name it. Uh, and we perceive those as blessings and opportunity uh, that seem to be out of reach for so many of us. Uh, they're, they're only poured out toward the wealthy. Or at least it seems that way. 
Uh, I think one of the main reasons uh, these things seem so attractive to us is because, uh, to a certain extent, extent, they convey a certain success in life, that they are doing something right. And in some ways, that these are the measures of the blessing that come with doing life right. And that success is desirable because it leads us to believe that we will retrieve, achieve in that success a certain level of satisfaction and contentment. Um, and we're all searching for that contentment in life. Uh, we say to ourselves, uh, I will be fulfilled if I achieve this success. I will be content. Um, and according to the world, that success and by extension that contentment is measured by wealth and the ability to be able to follow after any desire that you have. I remember uh, some eight or nine years back, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, uh, an actor by the name of Charlie Sheen was very much in the public eye. Uh, he was being uh, publicly called out for some erratic behavior, and he had just been fired from his gig at uh, Two and a Half Men, uh, and he was getting into a very public confrontation with his producers. Uh, and even though that Charlie Sheen had been fired, he was being given every opportunity to do interviews and put on a display uh, for the whole world to see. And he really gave us an idea of who he really was. Um, and in one such interview, he was going on and on about his greatness, uh, describing all of his achievements. Uh, he was listing all the things that he had acquired, uh, his monetary wealth, his lifestyle, living with multiple women, his drug use, um, and the daring in the way that he approached life. And at one point, he summed it all up in one single word, winning, Right? To the world, that is described as winning. And even though Charlie Sheen lost his, his main gig with two and a half men uh, and perhaps some of his fans, he gained a, a completely new following, uh, people that saw him as a free spirit who was unconstrained by, the, by conscience uh, that, that would dare to live by his own rules uh, that have nothing to do with external morality, certainly nothing to do with God. Um, and they agreed with him that that was winning. That's winning in life. And what Charlie and his followers were trying to communicate is that this is what true living is supposed to be. Winning true satisfaction and contentment in life comes from being able to do what you want, when you want, with no consequences for your actions. And Charlie Sheen is not an exception here. We often observe massive wealth and success coming to the unscrupulous and the wicked who win in this exact same way. They take what they want, and they care less what others think, especially God, and are seemingly rewarded for it. And they are happy and content, and they sleep at night. Now, as New Testament Christians, uh, we are repeatedly warned about seeking riches and going after the cares of this world. Uh, we are warned about this in the parables of the soil. This is Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus is talking about the seed sown among the thorns, and he says this. He says, and others are the ones sown among thorns. There are those who hear the word, the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, even though we have this warning, I think that we can sometimes find ourselves envying those who have material and social benefits. And we see them obtain them almost effortlessly. And we begin to envy them that they are receiving the good things in life. And we're not. And an internal struggle, spiritual battle, begins. And our desire for worldly things begins to conflict with our spiritual relationship with God. And here's where we need to be cautious. If we aren't constantly vigilant in protecting and nourishing our spiritual relationship with God, but instead we become too focused on the things in this world, if we become too enthralled with the material wealth and those things, and we see those things as more worthy than our relationship with God, then we can start envying the success of those who don't follow God. Because we see that they have what we erroneously see as the most valuable blessing from God and we become discontent in our hearts with our relationship with him. And if we're not careful, we might find our hearts beginning to entertain the question, am I really on the right side? 
And this is what I mean by that. Uh, We look at the world and we see clearly, and the Bible testifies to this, of the suffering of the righteous and then the prosperity of the wicked. And we look at that situation and we say, wait a second, I'm following after the all-powerful sovereign creator of the universe. And I'm being careful to, to guard my heart, to guard my ways, and to do those things that he commands. And yes, I have the promises of Christ, but I still have money problems, I still have health problems and car problems and kid problems, and each and every day, there seems to be more problems. Yet on the other hand, I see atheists, those who do not care for the things of God. They have no charity in their hearts. They're living a life of luxury and experiencing all the good things in life. And intuitively, we think that just shouldn't be. The good things in life should come to those who follow after God, right? Blasphemers and the ungodly shouldn't be rewarded, right? What's going on here? Is God just? Is God good to his people? Am I on the right side? Now, I think one of our problems is that we become short-sighted in how we see and how we value rewards and blessings. We're convinced more with the immediate blessings of material wealth and health as the ultimate measure of God's goodness to us. And when we don't have those material wealth, or the health, we begin to ask ourselves, is God being good to me? And this very question begins to stir up discontentment within us, and we begin to believe that our satisfaction and contentment doesn't fully come from God. But this morning, what I would like us to see is that in our search for contentment, it is not found in the temporal wealth of this world, but in the eternal treasure of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps some of you this morning are wrestling with the same question of contentment. You're asking yourself, is God being good to me? Can I be content with the promises of God? And so this morning, we're going to examine a man of God in the Bible who struggled with this exact same question. So if you haven't already, would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73? Now, as you're finding your way to Psalm 73, I want to remind us of just a couple of things about the nature of how the Psalms are written. Um, The Psalms act as the Bible's hymn book. It's the the praise book of the Bible. Uh, They are praise songs and hymns written to be used in public worship. Uh, And though the Psalms were written in a way that uh, uses very personal experiences, they often reflect the prayers and the emotions that are common to all of God's people. And what is important about that, what makes that so special, is that it makes the Psalms incredibly rich for us to be able to enter into those experiences and those praises and those dilemmas and learn from them. And they can teach us things about ourselves and about God and the things, the trials that we go through and our responses, the correct responses that we have to God. Now, what we know about Psalm 73 was that it was written by a man named Asaph. And Asaph was one of the chief musicians that was appointed by King David. And he's credited for writing at least 12 of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. So he makes him a rather important author in this book. Um, And like many of the Psalms, it can be hard to fit Psalm 73 into just one genre. There are elements of this Psalm that are like a lamentation uh, where it speaks of the sorrows, expressing sorrows of life. Uh, Some of them actually reads like a praise Psalm. Uh, So it's a very very hard to just shove this into one genre, but one thing that is very clear from Psalm 73 that is very confessional in its tone. Uh, it is, is endeavoring to confess something to us and to show us how we should take that to God and how we should respond to God. Now, I want us to, just to notice how Psalm 73 opens. So, uh, it, and it's an answer to our question. Um, we don't have to wait long to hear the answer to see what the psalmist says about God's goodness toward his, his people. Um, so look with me at verse 1, and, I, and I'm reading this out of the, uh, the ESV version. Um, Psalm 73, verse 1, it says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Uh, now, one of the interesting things to observe about Psalm 73 is that it has a circular structure to it, uh, meaning that the, the beginning of the psalm is actually its conclusion. This is the conclusion of the psalm. 
Um, and it opens this way because uh, Asaph is faced with a, a deep internal spiritual struggle. Uh, and it's caused him to ask that very question. Is God being good to his people? And after struggling with that question, after going through that internal struggle, he comes with the, an emphatic yes. And its conclusion is so praiseworthy and true that it's stated right up front. And now, as I just uh, said just a few moments before, the, the Psalms are deeply personable, but they're very, they're very relatable. Um, and Asaph wrote this psalm about his own personal experience, but I believe that he's anticipating that he isn't the only one who has ever wrestled with the question of God's justice and his goodness to his people. And so he opens this psalm uh, with a positive affirmation of God's goodness, uh, I believe, to give comfort to those who are in despair, uh, because what he is about to go to goes through some pretty dark waters. So up front, he says, yes, God is good to his people Israel. Now, like I said, uh, verse 1 uh, is part of the conclusion, and he points out two distinct truths in this. Uh, one, truly God is good to his people Israel. And number two, that understands this goodness relates to the disposition of the heart. It relates to those who are pure in heart. Now, we're going to come back to this conclusion in more detail a little later to understand what that's meant uh, by pure in heart. Uh, but to really understand it... Um, we first have to walk through the exact dilemma that Asaph was walking through. This is what he was facing. This is the internal struggle uh, that tortured his heart. Um, and Asaph states this conclusion up front, um, but he had to walk through some really deep waters in order to get there. Um, and his dilemma is actually spelled out in the next couple of verses. In verses 2 and 3, uh, read along with me and look at those. So this is verse 2. It starts out, it says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, Asaph's confession is extraordinary. Uh, after emphatically stating that God is good to those who are pure in heart, he shifts the focus to himself personally. And he says, but as for me, my heart isn't good. I almost stumbled. I nearly slipped. And he's giving this as a warning when he says, I almost stumbled. I nearly slipped. He's talking about completely turning his back on God, as we're going to see in a little while. Now, that in and of itself is a hard confession for anyone to make. But it's really it's what the nature of what was going on in his heart. And he's contrasting God's goodness and the pure in heart with himself, and he's being convicted of that, and he's saying, I'm not good. My heart isn't pure. And I can feel myself spiritually slipping away. In the very next verse, we see exactly what's going on in his heart. And we look at it again. let's look at it again at verse 3. He confesses, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is the, the heart of his dilemma. Uh, he was envious. And that led to discontentment in his heart. Now, envy is related to the sin of covetousness and ultimately to that of idolatry. Uh, but envy goes beyond just a passing desire for something. It's a covetousness turned up to 11. It's an extreme form of jealousy over an achievement or a blessing toward others that goes to the point of tormenting your soul. Uh, it's being tormented in your own soul uh, to the point to where your heart is darkened over someone else receiving what you desire. It's bitterness over seeing someone else being blessed while you yourself suffer want. Now, this might be seeing your best friend get a new truck while you know that there's no way that you can afford one yourself, but you've always wanted one. Or it might be seeing someone on Facebook getting a new house when you've wanted one for years. Or seeing the vacation pics from Disney, knowing that you can't afford to take your own family. It might be a promotion at work that you feel that you've worked for, but it goes to someone else. Or a talent that someone has that just seems to elude you, even though you have a deep desire for it. Now, envy doesn't just stop at wanting what someone else has. Uh, it takes root in your heart, 
And left unchecked, it becomes bitter to the point of making you miserable. And you become discontent with your own station in life. And the reality of this is because you think that God is being good to them, but not to you. And Asaph was envious. But who was Asaph envious of? Well, it says here in verse 3 that he was envious of the arrogant. That's an important word to, and a distinction for us to notice here. Uh, that word arrogant is describing the boastful, the prideful. Uh, but Asaph isn't just talking about those who are boasting about what good musicians they are or how good of an athlete they are. He's not just expressing an envy toward those that just go on and on about themselves as if they are conceited. Um, these are spiritual confessions, and when we read about people in the scriptures in spiritual struggles, they generally fall into two camps, the righteous and the wicked. And in the sense that this word arrogant is being used, it could also be rendered as the word foolish or the mockers. And when we see those words in wisdom literature of the scriptures, uh, those refer to those who are rejecting God's authority. They are the ones who mock God. So in reality, Asaph is confessing being envious of the ungodly to those who would mock God. Let that sink in for just a moment. What a stunning confession for Asaph to make. He's actually admitting that he was jealous, that he was envious of those who would mock God. Now, most of us would cringe for having that very thought exposed out loud. Um, never mind having the guts to actually write that down. But Asaph does just that. Because the heart is transparent to God. And the scriptures are laying our hearts to bear on this. Now we have to ask, what would motivate someone to be jealous to the point of torment over the reprobate, over those who are the ungodly, those who are perishing? What was Asaph's heart fixated on? Well, he gives us the reason in the very next line. He says in verse 3, that very next line, he says, when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, what does he mean by their prosperity? Well, in the next few verses, he goes on to, to tell us exactly what he means by that. Asaph describes the attributes of those whom he is envying. Look with me at verse 4 and 5. He says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as other are, others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. He's saying that they're carefree and untroubled. Asaph has seen them as the epitome of good health and a life of ease that just isn't experienced by most people. And that word fat there simply means healthy, that they were well fed. They simply don't have the day-to-day -to -day toiling and the labor that most of us do to make rent or to put food on the table. And because they have such ease and contentment in life, Asaph is making a very astute observation on how this affects their attitudes in, toward others and toward God. Look with me in verses 6 through 9. He says, Therefore pride is their necklace, speaking of the wicked. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. And they set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. Now in verse 6 we see the word pride. And it can also be translated as the word prestige. And I think here that gives us a bit of an insight of what he is describing here. There is a prestige that adorns them, according to the world, uh, that gives them a perceived right to do as they wish, uh, even disregard the law, if it gets them what they desire. Um, and they do to others whatever manner serves their purposes, uh, even doing violence to them. Uh, and not only do they speak and threaten people uh, in any manner that suits them, but they mock God while they do it. And because they do these things, and they still increase in, they still increase in riches and prosperity with seemingly no response from God for their wickedness. They live with a certain freedom of conscience. And so they gain the approval of the people who are bolstered and justified in their behavior. And this is what we see in verses 10 and 11. Look with me. 
Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Now, when we see here, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They aren't necessarily making a denial of God's existence. Uh, There are many who act this way and also maintain that there is a God. Uh, They just don't believe in God's justice. They believe that God is incompetent and that therefore they shouldn't put any trust or any security or any contentment in a life dedicated to him. And they say to themselves, does God even care? Does he, does he even see what's going on? Is there any justice from the most high? There's a, a misconception out there that just because God has allowed the wicked to live and thrive, that he just doesn't care and must not see what's going on. And it really comes down to them saying that there's no justice in this world. So I'm just gonna do whatever I want in the way that I can live to get ahead. And they aren't inflicted with a conscience before God. They have a life of ease and contentment and comfort and ease are always before them. And Asaph is looking at their prosperity And he's allowing his envious heart to twist what he understands as true prosperity and blessing. And he's just seeing the prosperity of having all that desire, and he wants that too. Even though he knows that they're wicked. The text doesn't say here, I envied their prosperity with the reality that they just happened to be wicked. That's not what it says. It says he's envying the arrogant. He's associating their prosperity as a result of their wickedness. His envy is for those who are the ungodly and the mockers, the arrogant who as a result of their way of life are rewarded with blessing and riches and health and ease and popularity. Now I want to go back to our our earlier examples uh, of how we envy. And let's say that your friend who gets the new truck, when you ask them how they were able to pay for it, they say something like this. They say, oh, well, we just cheated a little bit on our taxes, so we ended up with a little bit back extra, um, so we were able to put a down payment on that. Uh, Or when asked about how they were able to get a bank loan for the new house, they said, well, we just fudged a little bit on the numbers and the income levels. Um, We can't really afford the payments now, but we'll figure something out. And you're seeing that that worked. Uh, They got exactly what they wanted, and they sleep at night, and they have no second thought about it. And thunderbolts and plagues aren't coming out of the sky to strike them down. And you begin to envy and jealously fixate on what they have while lamenting what you don't have. And you start to think, is it all worth it? Here I am battling sin each day, denying myself, going through the struggles, the persecution, struggling to grow spiritually. Bills are stacking up. My health is deteriorating. I'll never afford the house or the car or the vacation that I desire. And what do I have to show for my allegiance to God? Maybe it isn't worth to follow Jesus. Maybe I could have a better life than this. And that's exactly the conclusion that Asaph was wrestling with. As extraordinary as that may sound. Look at me at verse 13 and 14. Look at what he says. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken, rebuked every morning. He's saying maybe it's pointless to engage in the struggle to keep my heart clean. I've tried to walk blameless in innocence, and maybe that's not what I should do. Now, just for a moment, I want to address the young Christians that are here today. Uh, the teenagers who are becoming uh, more and more aware uh, and wiser to the ways of the world. And it's really for all of us to hear, but I want to grab the attention of the young Christians, the young teenagers in the room this morning. You are entering into a phase of life right now where you have been presented with the gospel, no doubt, many times. And you're starting to form your own opinions and what you truly believe. And your parents have been faithful in raising you up in the household that walks with the Lord. 
And now, as you become more and more aware of the things that the world offers, you're going to start becoming more and more conflicted in your desire to run after those things. And perhaps some of you are already experiencing this. Um, you may have already seen friends uh, that, gave, that engage in a lifestyle that's contrary to the gospel, uh, f- following after things that your, your parents forbid. And you see your friends enjoying those things and they're walking a different path. They're not following Christ and you see them happy and at peace and content in life and you start to envy them. And that's the first step of walking down that path away from the Lord. It's seeing others who aren't walking with Christ having all the things that you desire and fixating on those things to the point to where you're miserable. And you start thinking and believing that because you don't have those things that God is not being good to you. And you become, you come to the same conclusion that Asaph is teetering here in, verses thir- in verse 13, that maybe it's all in vain. Maybe I shouldn't be following after Christ. And I'm telling you, that is a false conclusion to make. Uh, there is nothing in this life that is worth more, that is worth walking away uh, from faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason your parents limit some of those things that they do isn't to make your life miserable or to suffocate you. It's because those things do not have the eternal worth of Jesus Christ. And they are a distraction from the heavenly blessings of having a relationship with him. Now to the praise of God's glory, Asaph didn't settle on that conclusion and follow follow after his uh, envious heart that it was all in vain to follow after God. God was gracious to allow Asaph to see the futility of that conclusion and remind him of the true reality of this world and what his responsibility in it is. As we look at verse 15, we see Asaph come to this realization. Verse 15, he says, if I had, if I had said, I will speak thus, meaning if I would have concluded that it was all in vain, he goes on and says, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph realizes that this issue that he's wrestling with in his heart is much larger than just his own personal relationship with the Lord. Uh, the betrayal doesn't stop and start with Asaph. Uh, it affects others as well. Uh, he had a responsibility to the people of God. Asaph was one of the, the chief musicians. He was a founder of one of the temple guilds who was charged by King David to conduct music during the worship services. He was an important guy. First uh, Chronicles uh, 15 records that Asaph was one of the musicians that was chosen. And you're gonna, you, gotta, you can imagine there were thousands of musicians, but he was one of them that was chosen specifically to play the cymbals and lead in the music as the Ark of the Covenant of God was being brought into Jerusalem. He was a worship leader. He was an important one. He was a man that had a a deep heart, an affection for God. Yet he fell into this. And he envied the arrogant. And he knew that walking away from that wasn't a matter that just affected him only. It would affect all those that he had a responsibility to minister to. We have to constantly remember that we are not our own. As people of God, as a part of the body of Christ, we have a duty and a responsibility that goes beyond our own wants and desires. Our action, especially when dealing with God's people, affects others. And that betrayal is larger than you personally. It's larger than me. And there, there is more at stake. Men, worship leaders, fathers, uh, take note of the responsibility that we have toward those that God has placed us in leadership roles over. Uh, They depend on us not only as providers and as skilled leaders, but as examples of perseverance against the temptations to give in to our envious desires or become lax in our devotion to God who saved us. People notice you. Uh, both believers and unbelievers. And they look to you whether you wanted to be a role model or not. God has appointed you to this responsibility. And if they see you discontent in Christ, what is that saying about him as a soul-satisfying Savior? 
They can hardly be named anything as egregious and shameful as setting your eyes on something and becoming so adamant in your desire to have it that you begin to envy those who are perishing and turn your back on Christ. And this weighed heavily on, on Asaph and his soul. Uh, look with me at, at verse 16. He says, but when I, when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He was exhausted mentally trying to contemplate it all. But his meditation was not in vain. Uh, the very next line in the psalm becomes the turning point in Asaph's journey. Uh, his meditations and heart's anguish are brought into focus when he engages in heartfelt worship of God. Look with me at verse 17. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Notice that it just wasn't just reasoning, um, nor having just material blessing that got Asaph to turn uh, the corner um, from his madness, but it was entering into the, the sanctuary of God. Now, the plain implication here is that he drew closer to the presence of God through worship. Now, I don't think it's unreasonable to surmise that while he was in the sanctuary worshiping, uh, God was working on his heart to remember all the blessings that he had given to his people. Uh, the hymns, uh, the psalms, uh, they're filled with remembrances of God's goodness and justice and recitations of the history of redemption, uh, remembering all the things that the Lord had promised and fulfilled in the long history of redemption to show his goodness and his faithfulness and his love toward his people. That's why we get a long history in the Bible, is to show us how faithful God is. And when we remember those things, his character, his goodness, his holiness, and we reflect on the great eternal promises and that he is faithful to fulfill them, that should fill our hearts with joy and peace and love and satisfaction toward who God is, as it did with Asaph. And it allowed him once again to be able to say, yes, God is good to his people, Israel. And he begins to remember how temporary everything in the sinful world is. Verses 18 through 20 spell that out for us. Look with me. This is verse 18. It says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Now, notice the similar language that he, he's using in, in verse 2. He, uses the, he mentions the slippery places. He had almost slipped. But then he goes on in verse 19. He says, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears, like a dream when one wakens. O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Asaph clearly understands how temporary the prosperity of the wicked is. God has set them in the exact place that they stand, and it is not on the foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. It is on a slippery place, and even though they may have riches and health and all the material wealth and health and pleasures of this world now, it is only for a fleeting moment. The destruction of the wicked is assured. And it's not going to be until uh, that very moment that they face judgment that they understand what their fate is. Uh, but before that happens, they're going to have a life of ease. They're going to be wrapped up into that illusion. The blessings that they have here on earth, the security and contentment that they think that they have in this life is nothing but an illusion because it's not founded in having a restorative, eternal relationship with God. And it's so fleeting and quick, it's like a dream when one wakes up and then realizes that it was all an illusion. When you compare now, in this life that we have, in the momentary suffering, next to eternity, it is just like a dream. It's like a phantom that you can't truly grasp or cling on to. But we cling to the promises of eternal life in Jesus. He is the ultimate evidence of God's goodness and justice. And we can find peace and contentment in him, knowing that the sufferings in this life are only momentary and light afflictions compared to the glorious life eternal in Jesus Christ. 
Asaph realized that he was setting his eyes on the temporal things of this world and ignoring the truth that the true blessing is our eternal relationship with God. The, the envy of the wicked stems from a heart that fails to see that the material possessions and health of this world is temporal. And at the same time, it sets aside and turns our backs on the true reality of the eternal blessings and goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and our relationship with him through Jesus. Now, if you're convicted by this, uh, as I am, um, if there is something that is hidden close to home and there's a sense of sorrow in your heart, you are not alone. I think the experience that Asaph is writing about is meant to be convicting. I think it's more common. And that's why the Lord has put this in a psalm form for us to be able to experience. Uh, he experienced great sorrow uh, of what was threatening to take hold of his heart. And he's especially honest about it himself. This psalm gives us a, a true picture of what the heart consumed with envy looks like. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. When he was tormented with envy, he describes himself as brutish and ignorant. Um, he was like a beast before God. Um, and he's saying that he was like, acting like an animal uh, that has no understanding of the blessings of God. Uh, some commentators, they will translate that word uh, beast as monstrous to give the full weight of, his, uh, of the meaning of this phrase. He was saying, I was like a monster before you. That's what a discontent heart is. It thinks nothing of the grace of God. And it's like someone who is ignorant of the faithful, patient ground of God's grace that they are trampling over like a beast. The honesty of Asaph's confession here is startling. I mean, could you imagine uh, the scandal if a brother or sister came up to you and confessed and said, I woke up this morning and I didn't even want to follow after Christ. I just wanted to turn my back on all because I was envying the wicked because they have all the things that I want. And I'm doubting whether or not God is actually being good to me. We would be shocked to hear that. But I think we'd be honest. We're not used to that kind of confessional honesty. We're afraid of being judged for it. But I think we could stand to learn a little bit from Asaph how confessing those things and exposing our hearts to the Lord especially and to each other uh, can serve to bring us back into focus in the things, uh, especially when we're doubting God's justice and we're trying to overcome envy. We need to be able to see the goodness of God's grace in our lives. And now we come to the glorious reality of God's goodness to us. Uh, the reality that shows us that even though we can become ignorant and monstrous and like a beast before God, his goodness to us never ceases. And this is where our contentment in him thrives. Look with me at verses 23 through 28. It says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Notice how his contentment shifts when his greatest desire becomes God. It says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It is the Lord who holds our hand and gives us the wisdom, and he receives us. It is the glorious mercy of God that he has put it into our hearts to be able to see him as precious and the true provider of what is good. It is the glorious mercy of God that we can look at all the things in this world has to offer and we can count them as rubbish, as Paul puts it, in order to gain Christ. It is nothing short than a miraculous love of God that does this and it's proof that he is good to us. 
Verse 26 sums that up perfectly. It says, my flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Our flesh and our hearts do fail. We stumble and fall and foolishly turn after useless things and left to our own devices and desires, that would be all the hope that we have in this life. But God is good and knows that those things are fleeting and temporary. And he mercifully gives us the strength and the wisdom and the desire to seek him and to take hold of those promises. Now, earlier in the beginning of the message, I said that we would come back to verse one and explain what to the pure in heart means. Now, what it does not mean is that God is good as long as you maintain a pure heart. Uh, Asaph is clearly telling us in verse 26 that our hearts will fail. The pure in heart are those who trust and hope in God. They are placing all their hope in their satisfaction and their contentment and the trust in Jesus Christ. Trusting in him is what purifies us. As new covenant Christians, we understand that the exercising, saving faith in Jesus Christ is what purifies us and saves us. Only those who truly are affectionately clinging to Christ and thereby, thereby uh, through faith, are purified in him. And they will rely on God's strength to carry them. We have been given the greatest blessing of all, eternal life in Jesus Christ. He is our eternal portion. He is our eternal satisfaction. He is the source of our contentment that will last an eternity. Everything else is fleeting and temporary. That word portion in verse 26 means share or our allotment or reward. In giving us his son, Jesus Christ, is the greatest evidence of God's goodness and love towards us. He is the greatest reward that can draw us to him and bless us with. We have a restored relationship with God, an eternal inheritance. He lived the righteous life that we failed to live and we could never live. He suffered and took and bore the punishment that we deserve to bear. He took the wrath of God for us. And through him, we have forgiveness of sins and we have a restored relationship with him. What better reward can we have? What better satisfaction and contentment can we gain than through him? Our greatest desires as ministers of the gospel, as Christians, to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ and to see the riches of him and the treasure of heaven as our greatest source of contentment and satisfaction. And that's difficult to see at times. Uh, we are distracted with the short-sightedness of this temporal life, and uh, we sometimes we fail to have eternal eyes. Uh, Tim Keller has a really good illustration of this. He says that we're like little children who are failing to see the eternal value of Christ and be content and secure in that very truth. It's like uh, going to a two-year-old and trying to explain to them uh, that they have millions in inheritance that are waiting for them once they mature. Um, but that two-year-old just doesn't get it. They just don't see it. Uh, they're too fixated on the things that are right in front of them. They're worried about that toy over there. And they're too focused on their other desires to see it. But we can see it because our perspectives, um, we can see the riches that await us um, that that child, if they were just to be patient, trust in the promises of God that awaits for them, that they would find their satisfaction in Christ. Uh, we must be guarded in thinking that the things of this world uh, are the true way of happiness. Uh, we need to be vigilant against fixating our eyes and our hearts in the prosperity of others, making the tragic and wicked assumption that because you don't have those things, that God is not being good to you. Uh, our envy of them should be turned into pity and prayers for them uh, because without Christ, they will never truly know the goodness of God. And thus, they will never be truly content no matter how much treasure they heap up. So I ask you, are you envying the wicked and seeing their portion, the things that this world has to offer greater than the portion of eternal life in Jesus? Are you letting envy and bitterness well up in you to the point that it's making you miserable? 
so that it would affect your relationship with God's people? In your search for contentment in life, are you finding it in your eternal relationship with Jesus? We now come back to the original statement. It's the beginning of the psalm. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph realized the importance of stating this first and having this truth be the first thing that we read. And we also need to make this truth the first thought in our hearts each and every morning that our eternal portion is in Jesus Christ and truly say, God is good to me. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, we are humbled. We are thankful. We are overwhelmed by your mercy and your grace and your love for us, sinners that do not deserve it. Lord, you have given us the greatest blessing of all, life eternal in Jesus. Let us grab a hold of that and cling to it. By your power, Lord, give us the strength. And we need you, Lord. We fail each and every day. Lord, let us not be blinded by wealth and material things and the wants of this world. Lord, help us to have eternal eyes to be able to see that eternal relationship with you is far better than all the things that this world has to offer. Lord, show us your glory. Teach us how to pray. Humble us. Give us a sincere faith that comes after you each and every day, that sees your blessings each and every day, that identifies you as the sovereign creator of all things, that has given us everything that we need, life eternal in Jesus. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling this morning, that may they do not know you. Lord, I pray that you would grab their hearts. I pray that you would convict them and that you would turn their hearts to Jesus, that you would open them up to see how satisfying, how glorious, how amazing Jesus Christ is. Help us to be able to minister to them. Help the families, help fathers, help mothers, help brothers and sisters in Christ. Strengthen them and encourage them. Lord, to you be the glory forever and ever. We thank this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.